Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From the BBC, the Sony World Photography Award for this year, 2023, has been refused by the winner after the winner revealed it was actually an AI creation and not a photograph. (laughs) So they entered on purpose, but then were like, ha ha, gotcha, suckers. Pretty much, but like in a much more cerebral performing okay. kind of trollery. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it really just kind of boils down to this was trolling, right? Yeah. So his name is Boris L. Dagsen. He's a German artist. And his entry entitled Pseudomnesia, the Electrician, which, <laughs> okay, whatever, <laughs> uh, won the creative open category at the Sony World Photography Award. And if you look at the artwork, It does have what looks like some kind of lens flare, hence the electricity. It's got this older woman. She's sort of hunching with her hands on the shoulders of a younger woman in front of her. And the first edition of these, everyone was ragging on the hands, right? They can't get the hands right. right. The hands are all garbled. And if you look at this photograph, the hands are not right. Like the fingernails are not consistent. But at the time this was being held... I think a lot of this was still early days and we hadn't yet sussed out. Yeah, they haven't figured out hands. Well, not only that, but I've seen the picture and you focus on the faces. That's true. The expression has this haunted look like, you know, those Dust Bowl pictures in black and white where you've got that harrowed woman who's got this far away yeah. look. You get the sense that the AI was trained on that photographer's mm-hmm. work. <laughs> right. He said he used the picture to test the competition and to create a discussion about the future of photography, which, okay, there were lots of ways to do this, but, you know, way to make a splash. And to be fair, the organizers of the award told BBC News that, yo, this guy misled us about the extent of AI that would be involved. So in a statement shared on his website, the artist admitted he had been a, quote, cheeky monkey, Mm. (laughs) thanking the judges for, quote, selecting my image and making this a historic moment while questioning if any of them knew or suspected that it was AI generated. Mm. See, now I think (laughs) it's quite possible that he entered this thinking, ooh, I'm going to pull one over on them. And in the time since where people have been actually getting in trouble and having their, you know, winning ribbons taken back and whatever, once he won, it kind of became this real (laughs) moment of like, uh uh-oh, I better say I was doing this on purpose the whole time because they're definitely going to figure it out. It was only a joke. Yeah, exactly. He continued in his PR piece, which lends credence to your observation, quote, (laughs) AI images and photography should not compete with each other in an award like this. They are different entities. Therefore, I will not accept the award. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, you know, he entered this in the creative category of the open competition, which is one where they welcome very 
various experimental approaches to image making from cyanotypes and rayographs to cutting edge digital practices. So, so there were there were other works of art that probably were photoshopped. Correct. Like in the open category, they want to encourage like crazy Photoshop or I made this photo using an emulsion of egg yolk mixed in with the normal black. Like, you know, whatever it's going to be. Because, I right. goofed on this canvas. Right, right. right. <laughs> Anything goes. You know, it's, it's the open category of art. But following our correspondence with Boris and the warranties he provided, we felt that his entry fulfilled the criteria for this category and we were supportive of his participation. Additionally, we were looking forward to engaging in a more in-depth discussion on this topic and we welcomed his wish for dialogue by preparing questions for a dedicated Q&A with him for our website. But now, as he has declined his award, we have suspended our activities with him and in keeping with his wishes, have removed him from the competition. So mm. it does feel a little bit more like he was going to just be like, yeah, I won it, but then got too much crap. And he's like, no, I'm a purist after all. It was too easy. It wasn't really a collaboration. I just right. gave it a prompt. Because he's flip-flopped so much on it. But mm -hmm. to be fair, I don't think having a fixed opinion on AI <laughs> is really something we should be celebrating at this stage. Like, it's happening right, way know. too fast. We, right. Yeah, just yeah. I'm finally at an age where I can have the wisdom and maturity to be patient about like, hey, <laughs> the dust hasn't even finished pluming into the air. Right, let, let alone, alone settled. settled. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let so, me know when you have some of that patience to spare because I'm not patient yet. <laughs> I'm like, I want to know. I need to know exactly how this is all going to work. I want it documented. I want rules. Like, Well, there, there are some. There are some in the copyright rules. So I've been mm. looking pretty heavily into this. And that photograph technically is not copyrightable. So if you want to mm. use it for advertisement, feel free. And that's that's also why a lot of like the art AI communities, I think there is a, a Discord community where music AI people are just kind of like trading things back and forth. It does feel sort of like early days of the web where it's just like, what can we do with this? Long as they always got extra fingers, you know, like <laughs> some tell. Well, they did, but they're past that now. That tell is gone, y'all. Oh, bummer. Mm -hmm. right. right. If we can have it stop training off of racist Reddit, that would be nice. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. small steps, mm -hmm. whatever we can get. Well, it's small not steps. even just racist Reddit. Like, think about the entirety of like our MySpace and Friendster and LiveJournal and all of the crap we put the on the data. internet since, you know, we were testing it out and being teenagers on it and oops making mistakes that's what it's been trained on tom was my only friend <laughs> tom was the only good guy to come out of this right yeah all right next link next, next link. link so i don't know if y'all know this or want to know this but <laughs> on average you consume about a credit card's worth of plastic each week Wait, wow. Mm -hmm. Every week? Every week. That's on okay. average. So this is from the new Atlas. Sound can successfully remove microplastics from water, but I thought I'd lead within. <gasps> yeah, the <laughs> horrifying detail. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> right, and that's on average, which means some of y'all are consuming <laughs> way more than that. Too, <laughs> Somehow right? wow. that feels worse than the like urban myth of the spider, right? Like, <laughs> right. Consume X spiders <laughs> just by sleeping with your mouth open every year or whatever. Would you rather have eight spiders or a credit card? <laughs> I don't know, man. I go with the eight spiders because there's protein. At least it's natural. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So this is according to a study in 2019 from the University of Newcastle in Australia. But I think we also, I mean, deep down, we've known we've been ingesting plastics. We know that microplastics are in the water affecting more than just us two. So the challenge has been to find methods to successfully remove those microplastics from water. Which is no easy feat, considering how small these tiny pieces of plastic are that we're referring to. They measure one micrometer by five millimeters. Well, that's why we keep swallowing them. We can't even see them to pick them out of whatever we're eating. Yeah, they're like the world's smallest dog hairs. Like, you're never going to find them. (laughs) Uh I think it's something like three to the negative sixth power is how small we're talking about. And so think about that, too. You're eating that much small stuff that eventually becomes it adds a up card, to a credit card. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Professor Yoshitake Akiyama of the Department of Mechanical Engineering and Robotics at the Facility of Textile Science and Technology at Shinzu University. That's an easy one. <laughs> says, quote, the microplastics are aligned at the center of the middle microchannel using a bulk acoustic wave of 500 kilohertz resonance frequency. As a result, a 3.2 fold enrichment of microplastics occur at East Junction. So okay, more simply, ultrasonic waves travel through the water and push the microplastics into the center of the fluid stream. They have a little picture in the article of the device. It's really small right now, hmm. half the size of a credit card. And it's just a piece of plastic. It looks like acrylic that has these channels in it. And then underneath it, it looks like a white piece of paper, but it's actually a piezoelectric speaker. It's a rock crystal that if you supply current to, you can vibrate it. When conducting separate experiments on grouped microplastics, so sizes that are all the same, like 10 micrometers, Mm. they had a success rate of 90% removal, which is pretty good. Mm. And then when they mixed them up, they saw a collection rate around 80%. Because they're basically bouncing off each other at that point, right? Well, and yeah, they're going to resonate at different frequencies. Like I imagine you've got a different frequency for every size and you either have to go in stages where you do like one frequency after the next to remove all the different pieces or you just blast it and see what you can get. That's the American way, (laughs) right? The team believes the progress it's made shows that the device is further reaching applications. Like we'll use it to filter wastewater from industrial scale production. And while there are issues with the device, some of the microplastics slowing down or clogging the microchannel walls. But the researchers believe, and I quote, tweaks in the pre-filtration process and the 2D focusing could iron this out. Hmm. It's not the first acoustic filtering device model that scientists have developed, but this is just yet another way to take microplastics out of water. So even though it's not perfect, the more we have, the the better. So possibly you can answer this question. Is 500 hertz audible to humans? 500 kilohertz. Kilohertz. Yeah, 500 hertz would be audible. 500 kilohertz would not be. Our upper range is at 20K. And we lose that at like 18. So this is a high pitch noise, not a low pitch noise. Super high frequency. Okay. Yeah. So the dogs are not going to appreciate it if it goes in the laundromat. <laughs> not even but... the dog. Yeah, not even the dog. Dogs go up to 60. I think dolphins okay. hit up in the 100 range. I don't think anything gets up into the 500 range. Oh, that we know about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's when the kaiju come up and we go, oh, that's the frequency. Okay, exactly. never again. <laughs> or all the bees disappear again. Right. Oh. The one question I have about it, though, right, is, okay, so we've gotten all the microplastics out of the water. Now what? Do we just bury them in the ground? Do we Mm. recycle them? I hope we recycle. Of course. 
waters. Or Gwyneth Paltrow could convince everybody that microplastic water is good for you. (laughs) We'll get them drinking it and the rest of us will have normal water. (laughs) For people who want to evolve quicker. Right, right. There's plastic water. (laughs) Plastic water. Right. No need to be embalmed. Plastic water. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, next up, we have a pretty wild one from narratively.com, which, as you might expect, is a first person account that is super engaging and dramatic. And I really recommend you check this one out because I'm not going to have time to give you even half of the salacious details in this. It's called My High Flying Life as a Corporate Spy Who Lied His Way to the Top. (laughs) I have to admit that I started to read this one. I couldn't finish it because my rage was at such a (laughs) point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets so good, though. So our protagonist-ish here is Robert Kerbeck, who was, and I guess still is, an aspiring actor who actually has had a decent number of parts over the years, but never really enough to make a living. He mentions roles in what he calls B-grade shows, like Renegade and Pacific Blue. Plus, he had walk-on roles in Chicago Hope, Melrose Place, ER, and he even got to murder George Clooney once in an episode of Sisters. Hey, hey! All of this to say he's actually a pretty good liar, which is what made him so good as a corporate spy. So he started the gig in the late 80s in New York when a fellow aspiring actor friend named Pax offered to hook him up with a pretty sweet, flexible, part-time job in, quote, sales, making $8 an hour, which at the time was a good amount of money. So he goes to the interview, and the boss lady is in leopard print and really expensive jewelry, and there's a real polar bear fur rug on the floor— And she doesn't even ask to see his resume. She just talks to him for a few minutes and tells him he's hired. And he pretty quickly finds out that what they're doing is calling corporations and getting random assistants or whoever they can get on the phone to give them the names, job titles, and if possible, phone numbers of their various employees. Because other companies will use this information to reach out and poach people to come work at their company instead. And I'd never really thought about a company's basic org chart being that desirable, but in pre-internet days, it was worth big bucks. Oh, yeah. So he goes into a lot of the different ways that they'd get people to trust them on the phone. Like one of his coworkers would put on an Irish accent and pretend to be a student writing a paper. So she would ask the receptionist for the names of everyone in a particular department so she could reach out to interview them. And she'd throw in lots of emotional details about how if she didn't do well in her paper, her student visa could be in jeopardy. And they'd also use tricks like just asking for the names and then saying, oops, can you go down the listing and give me everyone's job title? And then, oh, real quick, could you give me their extensions, too? So, of course, as you would expect, Robert's pretty bad at it at first, but he gets better. And eventually his girlfriend, Giada, takes over a lot of the paperwork and organization so he can focus more on his strength, which is the lying. So (laughs) one of their most profitable lies was during Y2K. He would pretend to be in the IT department of the company he was calling and act like he needed to enter every employee into the new system by hand in order to protect everyone's data. So people bought into that because everyone was very scared about Y2K and they didn't know what was needed to fix it. Or sometimes he would say he was actually a client who was very satisfied with the company's performance and wanted to give everyone free tickets to a basketball game or whatever, and he needed to know who to send them to. So by 2008, he was bringing in $2 million a year. Until one day, he gets a panicked phone call from his friend Pax, who says, the police are after him, everything's falling apart, and he's just going to turn himself in. (laughs) And Robert's like, no, don't do that. Technically, what we're doing isn't illegal, and they have nothing on you, and just sit tight, and this will all go away. That, of course, was another lie. Because it turns out... (laughs) 
every single phone call they made qualified as federal wire fraud. And if the fraud affected a financial institution specifically, the punishment could be up to a million dollars and 30 years in prison for every call. And they had made thousands of them. But he tells Pax it's fine because he doesn't want Pax to give him up. And ultimately, it did turn out to be fine because the police were actually thinking that Pax might be Kevin Mitnick, who was a guy who was basically doing the same thing they were, but through digital hacking. And ultimately, they did catch Mitnick, also known as the dark side hacker, and he went to jail under domestic terrorism charges. <gasps> wow. Domestic terrorism. Yeah, wow. exactly. So that was a little scary for the boys. And they specifically started avoiding financial institutions after that, as well as telecom companies, because he said for whatever reason, places like Sprint took their security much more seriously than most companies, and they came close to catching them a couple of times. And yet they're the ones that went under. Right. Well, that's why, because this guy got all their information. All the best employees got poached, man. (laughs) Eventually, the party did wind down, first because of the Internet in general and more specifically because of LinkedIn, where suddenly people are just putting all that same information out there for free. Transparency, man. And there's a fair amount of reflection in the article about, you know, how he feels about his career looking back on it now. One of the interesting things he says is that the information stealing never bothered him and still doesn't. But he did develop genuine relationships with a lot of his best contacts over the years, because a lot of times he would establish himself as this character. And then he'd just call back a couple months later and be like, hey, it's time again. Corporate wants to know this. And the person would be like, oh, okay, how are the kids and whatever. And he would be real friends with them. And he feels bad about creating this entire fake persona with people who he genuinely liked and wouldn't want to lie to. So that was the aspect about the lying that bothered him. It hurt me. I don't like how they affected me. (laughs) Right, Somehow that defense (laughs) just felt like, I don't know, good lying. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, like I've said, I've skimmed a lot here. The article itself is based on a full memoir from the same guy. So I imagine there's even more to the story. Probably some of it is lies. You know, who knows? He could be making it all up. Like, what a great scam that would be, though, if you were an actor who had really just been an actor and now you'd written a memoir that you were claiming was factual but in fact you had just made all of it up yeah you know that catch me while you can movie catch me if you can yeah 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 yeah. it turns out that guy was also full of crap really yeah yeah he was in jail for most of that stuff that he said he was doing all of that stuff (laughs) well he did do something (laughs) if he ended up in jail (laughs) he did he did uh but all the rest of that stuff not so much it's hard to verify and just the idea of Fake it until you make it is like mm-hmm. the mantra of business. I remember hearing a story from my father about a friend of his who had a startup company. He was on the second floor. So he had to pass through the first floor, which was an already established company every day, which, he, you know, developed a relationship with the people that he was passing through. When it came time to get a bank loan, he brought the bank through that lobby, pretending as if they were all his employees. Oh, wow. He got the bank loan. Yeah. Well, this was also 1980s and he was a white dude. So he probably would have gotten the bank loan anyway. Right, um, right. So, well, yeah. Well, it was fascinating to me. I just learned recently credit scores didn't even exist until like yeah. the late 70s. Prior mm-hmm. to that, it really was just walk in and if the bank teller's got a good feeling about you, you yeah. get your loan. Like there really was no real way to verify anything. Mm-hmm. You get the nice face discount. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Seinfeld reference. Sorry. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, from fizz.org, researchers have developed carbon negative concrete 
Oh, okay. All right. right. Concrete <laughs> that in itself doesn't cause a problem in its Pretty creation. much. Yeah, yeah. Because we have okay. talked about on the podcast before what a suck <laughs> concrete right. is. It is tremendously uh, environmentally destructive. It does terrible things when it just sits up there and absorbs all this heat. It's just concrete is is so the worst and yet so ubiquitous. But Finally, a viable formula for a carbon negative, environmentally friendly concrete that is nearly as strong as regular concrete Uh has been developed at Washington (laughs) State University. Now, hang on, hang on. The biggest problem, yes, is that any kind of attempt to greenify concrete does result in less strong. So Mm -hmm. nearly as strong Maybe as good as we can get for now, but what happened is the researchers infused regular cement with environmentally friendly biochar, which best metal band name I've ever heard in my life. A type of charcoal, (laughs) it's basically a type of charcoal that's made from organic waste that had been strengthened beforehand with concrete wastewater. And by treating it that way, the biochar was able to suck up to 23% of its weight in carbon dioxide from the air while still reaching a strength comparable to ordinary cement. So I know we've talked about it before. Let's just have a recap, greatest hits, why we hate concrete. Okay, we've got more than (laughs) 4 billion tons of concrete produced every year across the globe. And when we make regular cement, it requires high temperature, a combustion of fuels. We use limestone in the production, which has to go through its own decomposition, which produces carbon dioxide. So It is thought that cement production is responsible for about 8% of total carbon emissions by human activities worldwide. So rude, right? Yeah, that's more than I was thinking. Mm -hmm. It's less than I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, between the two of us, we're just right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's how this number creeps up on us. One is like, no, no, it's too much. And the other one's, yeah, it's fine. Well, we can stop it in its tracks. Thankfully, because of this biochar, and it's not really a new substance we've been looking at. They've tried adding biochar as a substitute in cement to make it more environmentally friendly. But what they found before was adding even 3% of it dramatically reduced the strength of the concrete. Mm. So after treating biochar in the concrete wastewater, they were able to add up to 30% biochar. So it was like you're fortifying the stuff, but they made this paste of this biochar amended cement. It was able to reach a compressive strength after 28 days, which is comparable to that of ordinary cement of about 4,000 pounds per square inch. And like I said, the concrete washout water, it is waste material and it can Mm. often be super problematic. It's very alkaline, but it does have a valuable source of calcium. And that's what they basically honed in on. They use the calcium to induce the formation of calcite which benefits the biochar and eventually the concrete incorporating the biochar. It's so interesting that charcoal effectively would make the concrete so much weaker by itself because it was one of those things that you always used to hear about like, oh, Roman concrete was so much better than ours and we couldn't figure it out. And one of the theories was they're adding volcanic ash. Mm-hmm. But I guess volcanic ash isn't biochar, it's mineral char. And who well, knows? Well, it's organic like, char. I think organic, I'm, you know, this is why I'm not a chemist. All organic char is the same. Hashtag right. not all organic <laughs> char. Right, right, right. <laughs> but the principle is kind of the same, right? Where it's you're adding a little bit of this organic thing in doses. I don't know. It's like rebar. 
but it's burnt. and <laughs> Rebar biochar. Ryan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This is from Science Alert. Cold temperatures seem to have a mysterious effect on longevity. <gasps> and a positive one, I might add. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to bury the lead there. So there have been a few proposed reasons for this effect from past research, but scientists in Germany at the University of Cologne are using experiments on worms to identify another possible reason. Coldness creates a process through which damaged proteins are removed from cells. Huh. As we age, there are several neurodegenerative diseases that can take hold. Think Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and things. Right. These are thought or are linked to buildup of bad proteins. So get out there and sit in the cold snow. No, don't, 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 don't yeah, do I that. mean, this is don't great news at the time when the planet is heating up. Like we're all yep, yep, going to yep. end up with Parkinson's at 30 in the next 50 years. <laughs> right. And I've seen a lot of cold therapy devices out there that initially I thought were quackery. Right, right. Yeah, maybe there's some validity in some of those. I would like um, those cryo centers where you can pay people to like hyperfreeze you. Right, right, right. Well, obviously, extremely low temperatures are dangerous and right, damaging, right. if not deadly. But what research uncovered is that a moderate decrease in body temperature can benefit effects for the organism, not necessarily being outside in the cold. It is what is your internal temperature? Quote, although the longevity effects of low temperature were reported more than a century ago, little is known about how cold temperatures influence lifespan and health. To figure this out, researchers ran tests on specific worms, whose name I'm not even going to try to attempt to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. And they also ran tests on cultivated human cells in the lab. The results? Colder temperatures led to the removal of protein clumps that accumulated in the cell models of ALS and Huntington's disease, Ooh. which is pretty awesome. I'm trying to imagine a worm with ALS or Aww. Huntington's disease. <laughs> like a worm. Yeah, for what it's worth, the same proteasome activators, uh, mm. they are found in worms. They're the same ones that we have. Okay. So they were getting it anyway. This is this right. is an existing thing in the worm community. All right. Yeah, we, we weren't giving it to them. Oh, yeah. then, we're, then we're helping them. They should be grateful. That's fine. Exactly. Uh -huh. So apparently these proteasomes break down the protein waste. And it only took a moderate drop in temperature to get the activator working. Well, and this just gives fathers worldwide justification for like, don't turn the thermostat up in the winter. Like, it's just good <laughs> for right. you. That's right. There's still a lot more to discover yeah. about the sure. relationship between cold and aging. But the average internal human body temperature has been declining over the past decades. Huh. Oh. For me, like I've always had a lower body temperature. I've been at 97.6, hmm. somewhere around there. So whenever I did have a 98.9, I would have to tell the nurses, no, I am sick. Right, like, That's right. not average. Yeah. So maybe I won't get Alzheimer's. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm unfortunately the opposite to you. I always run a little bit hot. Like I'm pretty much always 99, 99.2. And no. so uh, I'm going to die, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's just a, a veritable Neanderthal. Yeah, you just yeah. get a brain disease faster than the Oh, okay. Rest of us. Oh, that's fine yeah. then. It's not that you're going to die. You just, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right, uh, uh, right. I'm sure there are many other factors than right, just the probably. cooling temp. But again, there is hope on the front. I decided to have hope stories this time. Aww. They're out there, man. They're they out are there. out there. They are out there. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one comes from sciencenews.org, and it's called 
What did Homo sapiens eat 170,000 years ago? Roasted, supersized land snails. Oh. <laughs> not a fan of escargot? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, well, this article's not going to be very fun for you. <laughs> I'm just going to take my headphones off now. <laughs> now, it should be noted that this is only shocking, at least from a scientific perspective, because of the time frame. Because we already knew that early humans were eating giant snails as far back as 49,000 years ago in Africa and 36,000 years ago in Europe. Hmm. These snail species, which can grow as big as an adult hand, belong to the Achatidinae family and are very much alive today. So you could theoretically try one out if you wanted to. I hear you don't. (laughs) Where do they live? I think still in Africa. It's not in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, honestly, probably Australia too. Like, that just makes sense. (laughs) But in fact, you should maybe consider eating these land snails because... According to the article, giant land snails are incredibly nutritious. They are a dense source of fatty protein with a profile similar to mollusks and oysters. And this new discovery actually upends a previously held theory that the transition to eating fish and shellfish was a prime driver in human brain evolution. Because the idea was that fish have lots of omega-3s, which is good for brain development, But now that we know snails were on the menu at least as far back as fish were, they can no longer say for sure which one might have had the bigger impact on our brain development. Hmm. So how do we know that they were eating snails 170,000 years ago? Well, there is an excavation site known as Border Cave in South Africa, which was steadily occupied by early humans for more than 100,000 years. And so what they've been doing at various points since 1934, but most recently from 2015 to 2019, is taking core samples downward to see what sort of chemical properties they can find in the older and older layers. So chemist Marine Wojciech of the Royal Institute for Cultural Heritage in Brussels says that this one cave has provided a massive treasure trove of data, including evidence of campfires and cooked plants as far back as 227,000 years ago and the first known example of grass bedding 200,000 years ago. But while the bits of snail shells in the cave go back 170,000 years, Wojciech says there is a sudden but temporary increase in the quantity of snail shells about 10,000 years after that, which may indicate a change, perhaps something in the climate or perhaps an explosion in the snail population itself that either allowed or forced these early humans to subsist a lot more heavily on these snail creatures for a while. Hmm. And she says the sheer number of snails indicates a significant coordinated campaign to collect them and bring them back to the cave for others to eat, which proves these early humans not only had social bonds, but may have even designated the snails in particular for the elderly and the very young who would have had an easier time chewing the, quote, (gasps) slimy, chewy creepers. (laughs) feels like a little bit of a leap to me. Like, I don't know why. Yes, they're easier to eat. And yes, they're bringing them back to the cave instead of like just eating them out where they find them. But the elderly and the children, you know that this was a fad like tulips, right? This is what you gave to like, hey, I really like you. Here's a snail. It's your promposal with the snail. That's why it was it was a fad that ripped through the early human civilization. (laughs) There was one cool human and they all said, that looks cool. Let's do that. That's the thing we got to (laughs) do. They can also say for sure that the ancient snails were roasted before eating. 
thanks to both the chemical and microscopic surface details of these shell fragments. And again, if they're bringing them back to roast them, that's why they're bringing them back. I don't know why she's like, no, clearly these were for the elderly. The fire is at the cave. You're not going to, like, whip out your little Zippo lighter and cook one out in the woods where you found it. But for comparison... The team cooked modern African land snails over hot embers at varying temperatures for between 5 minutes and 36 hours and were able to confirm that when you roast a snail this way, the top of the shell cooks differently than the bottom, which may explain the wide variety of samples found at the cave. The scientists did not, unfortunately, admit to eating their comparison samples, but honestly, I hope they did. Yeah. I mean, how could you roast a whole snail for science and not at least taste it? What a I waste. Would eat one. <laughs> I have had escargot before, and I liked it, I have to admit. It was mm -hmm. good. I have uh, watched Angie eat it. And, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Listen, when you I said needed. close to mollusks, that was pretty much it. I mean, I had like a lobster sandwich earlier and earlier in the week. We had a good discussion about like, the overlap between aquatic and land bugs. Yeah. Why is a lobster tasty, but a scorpion is not? I mean, I mean, yes, it's smaller. You can't get a lot of meat off a scorpion, I guess. Yeah, I, a scorpion I still can't do. I think my, my Vietnamese mother is like, yeah, scorpion's no big deal. But Ugh, no, not me. I'm sorry. Well, I will say, though, <laughs> if you eat the scorpion, it probably has less plastic. than. <laughs> That's true. We're all going to be eating scorpions because it's all we have left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Deputy and the Disappeared, What Was the Life Expectancy of Ancient Humans, and Excessive Screen Time is Changing Our Eyes Faster Than We Can Blink. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.